Let's take our Bibles and go back to Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And we're going to sing a little bit more when I finish. And I'll try to cover this rather quickly. But we want to sing a little bit more in anticipation of chapter 12. Because when you get to chapter 12, you better be singing. Because it tells you to. And we're going to tell each other to. Chapter 12 is very interesting. I'll allow you to sneak ahead this week to chapter 12, as long as you'll do a little reviewing as well. Chapter 12 in the first verse is in the first person between the, uh, the prophet and God himself. Verses 2 through 6 are purely congregational as we exhort each other to greater praise for the salvation that God secured. You'll find it interesting if you'll look for that, but not right now. Right now we need Isaiah 11. I read to you three verses, verses 10 through 12. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 through 12. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Amen and amen. There are a lot of days in Isaiah, but that day that is here opening up verse 10 is the gospel era of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that I have said enough for you to understand with only a little reminder the timing of the prophecy. Don't, please don't be mistaken. This is the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of this chapter, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Gabriel told Mary he would be the son of the highest. He would be the son of God, but he would be the son of David as well. Do you know that the first verse of the New Testament is that the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, because that is a key point of doctrine for you to understand the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The context absolutely confirms the gospel era. This verse is quoted by Paul in Romans 15 and verse 12, That is the 10th verse by him in Romans 15 because he wanted to show the church at Rome that the Jews and the Gentiles should get along perfectly in that church and love each other because Jesus Christ's kingdom included both of them. In that day, the gospel era of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ and the apostles extending all the way to us, there shall be a root of Jesse. He came in the days of the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, John the Baptist burst forth on the scene and announced the coming of Jesus Christ. 
and identified him as the Messiah of Israel. There shall be a root. And we've already been over that. Jesse began the dynasty, and it extended through David to the Lord Jesus Christ, where it ends. And he keeps it forever, sitting on the throne of David. And this Lord Jesus Christ shall stand for an ensign of the people. An ensign is a military standard or a military banner or a flag or a coat of arms. I throw out all those terms for you to visualize something in your mind of a place of gathering for soldiers to come together for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me chase a similar line of reasoning that you just heard from our brother Jim. He referred to Washington. One picture is more famous about World War II than any other picture. Nothing else compares. Iwo Jima. Was there a standard being raised? Was there an ensign? Was there the colors of a country being planted by those Marines at the top of Iwo Jima? And it's a picture forever in the minds of Americans. So now you've got a picture of an ensign. Do you know what that said? You're ours. We own this place now. We won. It's ours. And we have an ensign and a military standard banner flag and coat of arms of the Lord Jesus Christ because the gospel is all about him. The gospel is to declare and in visual terms for the Old Testament that was so focused on visual things, the ensign of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel declares him. And it says of this ensign of Jesus In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, that's his fleshly origin in the family of David, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. It would gather together, because you know these verses are about scattered, dispersed Jews all coming back, but not geographically, to Zion for the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the ensign being stood up for him. And to it shall the Gentiles seek. Were there Greeks in John chapter 12 that told some apostles who said, what are you looking? We want to see Jesus. Greeks wanting to see Jesus because this was fulfilled in the days of the apostles. It began with Cornelius' home and household and domestic servants with Peter. And then it progressed with Paul, who became the apostle to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles sought to the ensign, and the ensign is, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God. And visualize the banner. If you need visual things, you're weak spiritually. And and I just gave you one, but that was just to get you started. Because when Moses was allowed to see the glory of God, he did not see anything. He heard truth about the character of God. And so the gospel is directing you, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Who do we look unto? You can't see God. You'll never see God. But we see the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the ensign 
of the kingdom. He's the military standard. It's David's family. Slam it in the ground. And let's go to it. And let's bow the knee. Every knee shall bow. You got to hear that conversation with your grandpa. Grandpa yesterday, he wanted to tell me that his favorite verse out of all of Philippians was, yes, every man shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But his favorite, he he wanted to tell me, every man shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but every knee shall bow. Oh, that was not... That was nice. Christina's grandfather. Every knee shall bow because we're going to come to that ensign and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the focal point. He's the gathering place of the entire kingdom of God. Jesus must have the preeminence in our church. He needs to have the preeminence in your life. You need to be seeking him in your reading. When you read Isaiah 11, don't try to learn all the details. See Christ in it. If you want a list of every verse that has Jesus in the first 12 chapters, ask me, and I'll get it for you. It's in the outline that will be posted shortly for Isaiah chapter 11. And so we have verse 10. It is describing the gospel era of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would stand for an ensign of the Jews. To it would the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. We sang a song just a few moments ago that we were waiting to find Jesus as our hiding place because we all need a place to rest. And there is glorious rest in this kingdom because this king wins. This king is the fi- has the final victory and there's rest. And he has finished the work that the father gave him to do so that our redemption is settled, sure, and certain. He's the surety of his people. None of us can be lost. His rest is glorious. This is not a physical rest. This is a spiritual rest consistent with the spiritual kingdom that we're talking about. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he was not talking about reducing the work week from six days to five days like we pansies have in the 21st century. He was talking about those under spiritual burdens, those under guilt, those under grief, those under shame. There's rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look at Psalm 95. Psalm 95 about rest. And his rest is glorious. Indeed it is. Oh, brethren, how many sacraments do we have in our church to get saved? How many invitations do we have to get saved? None. Because his rest is glorious. He has finished the work of salvation. Psalm 95, verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said... It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. There are two chapters in the book of Hebrews from that prophecy. Those two chapters are Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. The sat Paul reasons this way. Paul is the master logician, rhetorician, 
Hebrews is so logical. The Sabbath was not the rest for the people of God. The seventh day off from work, which I just made fun of a few minutes ago. Canaan was not the rest for the people of God. Even though when they crossed over into Canaan, the houses were built, all the infrastructure was in place, the vineyards were planted, city walls, houses furnished, wells dug. No, that is not the rest. Paul refutes that in Hebrews 3 and 4 because our rest is in the ensign of Christ Jesus who finished the work of redemption. And so we get to rest from all the efforts on our part, whether they be Old Testament law works or Roman Catholic sacraments or decisional regeneration of the Arminians, it's finished and we rest. And what a kingdom we have. And we get to rest in him. Verse 11. Yes, there's much more that could be said. Don't ask me. It's painful. Baptism is such a wonderful thing. The answer of a good conscience toward God. How do we get a good conscience? Because we hear the gospel and it tells us our sins have all been paid for. You know, every wolf in here that repents, Jesus Christ covers his wolfness in all of his wolf acts. It's a wonderful thing. We can rest. It shall come to pass in that day, verse 11, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people from all over the place. Okay, here we go. Let me try to do this briefly for you. We know the, we know the context. We know the timing. How do we know it? From the that day that is in verse 10. We know that verse 10 is the New Testament era of Jesus Christ because Paul quotes it in Romans 15. I believe that's the third time, maybe the fourth, that I've told you today that Isaiah 11.10 is quoted by Paul in Romans 15.12, so we know the timing. This is the New Testament era of Jesus Christ. So that tells us the timing of this recovery of some remnant. We have two choices of the first one. Babylon is second. You know, the recovery from Babylon came after this. So that Egypt, the, the recovery out of Egypt was first, and the recovery from Babylon is second. We could take that route. Or we take a route that Messiah is second and Babylon is first. And we want to do it that way because there's a whole lot of problems if we try to do it any other way. When God took his people out of Egypt, he did not fulfill anything like a first recovery of a scattered remnant. They were not a remnant. They were a nation altogether jammed together in one little place. Totally different. Totally different. This is what he's going to do after he recovers them from Babylon He's going to recover them by the gospel. This is a spiritual recovery of all of his scattered remnant, the scattered elect of the Jews. Wherever Paul went, where did he go first in every town? He went to the synagogue because he was looking for Jews first to recover them spiritually. You say, but that's jumping kind of ahead because the recovery from Babylon hasn't even occurred yet. You better get used to that in the book of Isaiah because how will you handle Isaiah 13, which talks about the Medes and the Persians destroying Babylon, which was even farther away? And the whole city being reduced to mounds. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand 
to recover the remnant of his people because he had elect scattered everywhere that had been taken away by Assyria, taken away by Egypt. They would eventually be taken away by Babylon. They were scattered throughout the world. So that everywhere Paul went, there was a synagogue. There isn't a synagogue in a city unless there are Jews there. But everywhere Paul went, there was a synagogue for the most part. He, he would find the synagogue and Jews would be converted and Gentiles would be converted. And this is the recovery that has taken place of the scattered remnant. There's only one other recovery of a remnant from various places, and that's after the Babylonian captivity ends. The exodus from Egypt doesn't qualify. This second recovery was of Israel and Judah, because verses 12 through 13 includes both of them. That didn't happen in Babylon. The second recovery was joined with Gentiles. That didn't happen with Babylon. And so there are features of this recovery that is the gospel recovery of the New Testament era, which is consistent with the timing when Jews and Gentiles were recovered together, the elect. But it wasn't a geographical, locational recovery. It was a spiritual recovery. There was no, there was no second gathering together of Jews back to, back to Jerusalem. That occurred from Babylon. It was physical. This is spiritual because the whole context is spiritual. The, lion, the wolf and the lamb are spiritual. Verses 1 through 5 are spiritual. It's Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit upon him. And so this recovery is spiritual. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations. When did the Gentiles join the Jews? In some physical relocation to Mount Zion. It's spiritual. Isaiah 2 and verse 2, does it say all nations shall flow unto it? How did they flow? Were they using kayaks or rafts? How did all nations in Isaiah 2.2 flow to Mount Zion? Spiritual Mount Zion. Didn't you flow there this morning? You say, I drove. So did I. But all the Gentiles have flowed to that Mount Zion that is above, right. along with the Jews. He pulled, Paul went into these cities all over Turkey, all Europe. He was in Greece. He went to Italy. He wanted to go to Spain. And he would go into cities and find a synagogue, go in there and read about the ensign and tell them he knew who it was, that it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jews were being recovered, the elect remnant, they're the only ones that matter to God, are being recovered from all these cities and foreign nations along with the Gentiles. And that is what verse 11 is describing in that day. There was going to be a recovery to make the kingdom of God greater than it had ever been before. It would be made of elect Jews and elect Gentiles, and the Gentiles would far outnumber the Jews, as we know from history, because all nations would flow unto this spiritual Mount Zion. Not all nations exclusively considered the elect in all nations. When it tells us in the Bible that there is a great multitude before the throne of God, it says out of every nation, out of every tribe, tongue, and people. When it says in Romans 9, 24, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, it's not all the Jews and it's not all the Gentiles, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. This is the re spiritual recovery by the gospel of pulling the kingdom together. The kingdom had been blown apart 
physically, nationally. Boom! Assyria took the ten tribes and scattered them abroad by their immigration policies, by bringing other people in to take their homes and their cities. Babylon did the same thing physically. And physically, they were recovered by Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra, and so forth, as we can read about in our Bibles. But there's another recovery. The second time that God's going to bring his kingdom together was not that kingdom. Oh, listen, the people under Nehemiah, are you kidding me? Why did Nehemiah have to rip their beards, spit in the face, curse them, punch them? Why did he have to do that? Because they were wicked. Why is the book of Malachi written? Because they were so wicked that came back physically. But there's another kingdom, the one that came back spiritually by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles in that day. And we've got that day twice in verse 10 and in verse 11, tying it together, the New Testament era of our Lord. Verse 12, he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And I have warned you, if you do not believe Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, you cannot understand this. I've tried. Hebrews 12, 22, ye are come unto Mount Zion. What Mount Zion? And to the heavenly Jerusalem. What Jerusalem? A spiritual one. You say, this is hard to grasp. No, it's because you're so oriented to the physical. We're too oriented to the literal. We're too oriented to the physical. Who cares about a regathering in earthly Jerusalem compared to a regathering in the spiritual Jerusalem? One is far superior to the other. Paul would say, if you can see it, it's temporal. If you can't see it, it's eternal. And you're come to the kingdom that cannot be moved. I don't. Hebrews 12 is just powerful. God had said in it to, through Haggai, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth one more time. And all that's going to be left is my kingdom. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And then in Hebrews 12, Paul said, this is the fulfillment of it. We receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Where is that kingdom's capital? Where is that kingdom's citadel? Fortress, ensign, where is it all? It's in heaven. And we're on earth. And so he'll set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. And we all came together. Paul would go into a city, stand up in the synagogue, explain that Jesus Christ was the ensign and the king of the kingdom, the Messiah that had been prophesied. A few Jews would believe, the rest would hate him, chase him out of town, and a few Gentile proselytes that were there would believe also. And so it would be left the nucleus of a church in every place that he went, made up of Jews and Gentiles, kind of, kind of, kind of like, I mean, exactly like this verse. Exactly like this verse. He'll set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. Why are they outcasts? Because they're over in Turkey. They're over in Greece. They're not in Israel. Outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed. Does that word help you? Why are they dispersed? Because they're not in Israel. They're in all these other places. Let's go through the list again. There seems to be a few questions. Maybe? Assyria? Does that make sense? Did the Assyrians come and take the ten tribes captive? Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, those are territories of the Persian Empire. Shinar, Hamath, and the islands of the sea. Cyprus, Crete, Tyre, 
The people were scattered, and every one of those places had synagogues. Then they had churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, outposts of His kingdom. The ensign was planted by the Apostle Paul. He was the Apostle of the Gentiles, and Jews and Gentiles flowed to it, and the kingdom of God turned the world upside down. Can you believe that a Roman emperor had to convert to Christianity, even if in name only, to keep his empire together? Do you know when he was on the battlefield to get his troops to fight for him with all their might, he said he had seen a vision of a cross in the sky in this sign conquer. What in the world had happened to the world? An ensign had been planted and there was a new kingdom. And God had said in Daniel 2, in the days of these kings, Roman kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. John the Baptist announced it. Jesus continued it. Men pressed into it. They violently changed their lives to take the kingdom of God. It was preached by Paul as present. He brought in the Gentiles in great numbers. And here we are today, thousands of miles away, in another hemisphere of the earth, having been gathered together. That's section 3, verses, 12 through, verses 10 through 12. Now I read verse 13. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart. This section of four verses is the enemies and obstacles to the kingdom of Jesus Christ eliminated. Ob enemies and obstacles eliminated. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah. Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dryshod. And there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria." like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, these four verses. What's the timing? It's of great importance. We can't compromise it or we're going to end up in heresy. What's the third word of that 13th verse? Is it the third word of the sixth verse? Is it tying something together? <laughs> Is it tying something together? Now, what if an ensign was planted and Ephraim, that's a nickname for the ten tribes because of its dominant tribe of Ephraim, what if the ten tribes came to the ensign and the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin came to the ensign, what's going to happen? War. War. You see, it sounds like then he's dealing, he's restating six through eight a little differently, that they're not going to harm nor hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain? Exactly. Because that kind of animosity, that national hatred of each other is going to be eliminated. Ephraim is no longer going to envy anybody from the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Judah is not going to vex the ten tribes and make fun of them because they didn't have David, didn't have Jerusalem, didn't have the temple, and all the rest of it, because they're all going to be happy at the one ensign at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the fulfillment of every prophecy of the Old Testament in him, their new king. 
the envy also, also ties it right back in with what we're covering here. Verse 10 is a key verse. It sets the timing. That is the New Testament era of Jesus Christ. When you have 13, the envy also, it's not just going to be gathering people that hate each other. They're going to be put at peace with each other because their animosity is going to be taken away. And that's verse 13. They shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. These recovered Jews. Now listen, don't try not to think geographically. Were there Philistines that had remnant Jews? Did Edom have any? Go read about Edom taking them captive. Did Egypt have them? We've had a whole list of names given where there were captives. And there were converts out of each one of these places. And there is a rush. They flowed to Mount Zion spiritually in the conversion of remnant Jews taken out of every nation on earth. And so they were defeated. It wasn't a military defeat. Hezekiah didn't bring an army to do this. Nehemiah didn't bring an army. Zerubbabel didn't bring an army. There was only 45,000 Jews that came back from Babylon to work on the little city of Jerusalem. This is a spiritual revival. This is a spiritual gathering together. And God grabbed his remnant Jews out of the Philistines. They're the ones in the West. He gathered his remnant Jews out of them of the East together. Those are the ones named over here in 11 that are named Elam, Shinar, Hamath, those are places in the east, Persia, the plain of Shinar. That's where the Tower of Babel was put up. That's where Babylon was. This remnant kingdom, this kingdom that's going to be formed from the remnant Jews is going to prosper so much, it's going to get all of its remnant, elect remnant out of the Philistines, out of the nations of the east, out of the nations of the south, and there's going to be converts from all of those nations as well. They are going to win a victory that is not physical, it's not a flag in the ground, it is spiritual, and it's superior to a military victory. It is a spiritual victory, and they would win. These Jews being gathered together, Gentiles would join with them, and that would make the, church of the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ and build His kingdom. Because an ensign had been planted, and they're flying. They shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, there's a rush to win and success. Come, let us go and hear the voice the, in the house of the Lord. Let's hear the laws of our God. And there was a rush. When there was a persecution in Jerusalem, it tells us in Acts chapter 8, the first few verses, that everyone was scattered abroad and everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. There was a church so fast, 300 miles north in Antioch of Syria. Churches exploded in every direction. And there were converts taken from every nation. And remnant Jews worshiping in their synagogues in all those nations were converted as well. And that is this recovery and the gathering of the nations along with the outcasts of Israel and Judah in those nations at the same time. And God would take away the enmity so that Jews and Philistines, ever, were they ever friends? Jews. Jews and Philistines. No, they're going to have a complete victory. There's going to be Philistines and Jews, Gentiles and Jews, sitting down in the same church, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, the ensign of the kingdom of God. And you know how fast it's going to happen? They're going to fly up on the shoulders of the Philistines. 
They're going to fly toward the west. Visualize the Mediterranean Sea. It's long. It goes from east to west. At the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea lies the nation of Israel, north and south. And between it and the Mediterranean Sea, except for a couple tribes that actually touch the Mediterranean Sea, there is a little buffer nation called Philistines. They were in the west. Elam, Persia was, was in the east. These other nations that are listed here, Edom, Moab, and Ammon are in the south. And they all gathered together in the recovery of the nations. Verse 12, he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and that's going to gather the assembly to assemble the outcasts of Israel and the dispersed of Judah. He'll take away the enmity of the ten tribes versus the two tribes so that they can get along, and there will be complete victory over nations like the Philistines, Moab, Edom, and Ammon shall obey them. Obey them in what way? Would you please tell me what way that we are talking about that happened in the days of Paul so that he could say Romans 15 was the fulfillment of it. When did Ammon obey Israel? How did they obey Israel? They joined the church. They submitted to Jesus Christ. Your king is our king. What, what, what was the eunuch doing in Jerusalem? He was there for to worship. What had happened to him? Those apostles flew around everywhere. Philip. Philip flies out of Jerusalem. Literally, well, he's going to fly in just a moment. You know, he went into the desert to find the Ethiopian eunuch, and after he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, you know what it says? He was in Azotus preaching again somewhere else, and people were being converted left and right. That's what this is describing. Once, once you settle on the timing, it is so helpful, then you can see by what it says that it was fulfilled spiritually. And you've got to remember similitudes. You know, these are rules of Bible study that we have to practice when it comes to prophecy. Right. Similitudes are pictures, and so it's using military language to describe a spiritual victory of Philistines being converted by the gospel and, being, and submitting themselves to Jews. Do you know how much Gentiles love Paul? Have you ever read Acts chapter 20, when on the seashore, the elders of the church of Ephesus came out to say goodbye to the apostle Paul? Do you know what it says in Acts chapter 13 in Turkey? And when the Gentiles heard this, they glorified the word of the Lord. And they wanted Paul to come back, and almost the whole city came to hear him. Here's a Jew rushing around the world. They shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines. And so there were converts out of all these surrounding nations by the ministry of the apostles as part of Jesus Christ's kingdom extending itself in the world when it was planted by John the Baptist, baptizing Jesus Christ of Nazareth and the Holy Spirit descending upon him. His kingdom came in force. Men pressed themselves into it. And for a while, Jesus was not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But when that little period of time was over, he said the gospel should be preached starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. And they went and preached and men were converted. There wasn't a military victory of Jews over Gentiles. There was a spiritual victory of Jews over Gentiles. Verse 15. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. That is the Red Sea. It is shaped like a tongue. Go look it up on your globes at home. The Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. Did, what, what happened to the Red Sea in Romans 15? Did anything happen to the Red Sea in Romans 15? The literal Red Sea? No. 
nothing happened at all. It's a similitude. The Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, that's the Nile River, and shall smite it in the seven streams. The Nile dumps into the Mediterranean through seven smaller rivers and make men go over dry shod. Wow. So, so men are going to go over dry shod because the Lord's going to get rid of the Red Sea and the Lord's going to get rid of the Nile River. I guess that means that anybody that is in the West is going to be able to go to Jerusalem very easily. Yes, if you're thinking literally, you've got it. But since it's not literally, and nothing happened to the Red Sea or the Nile River at all, and we're talking about the New Testament era of Jesus Christ, God removed all obstacles for Egyptians to join the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the churches of Jesus Christ. When we read about Apollos in the Bible, where was he from? Alexandria. Oh, yes. Alexandria, Egypt. The Lord shall utterly destroy, so we don't, the Red Sea disappears. Is it still there today? In the Nile, men are going to be able to go over it dry shod. And there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria. Now that's the other end. See, Egypt's to the west. Assyria's to the east. But there's going to be a highway. Was it concrete or asphalt? No. Yes. Concrete or asphalt, how many lanes? Did it have mile markers? So you check your watch. Check your speedo as well. Speedometer. I'm, I'm not trying to be funny. I want to make you think. There was a highway set up for every one of those remnant Jews to come from the east and the Nile and the Red Sea were taken out of the way for, for the elect to come from the West. They didn't move geographically. They didn't move locationally. That is picture language of similitudes for the ease that God made it to be converted and join His kingdom. And Paul and the apostles blew that gospel out and there were converts everywhere and they were able to take the highway to Mount Zion. But it was a spiritual highway of having preachers of the gospel come and visit them and lay it out plainly. And the preaching was that the word of the Lord might have free course and be glorified and that there be no hindrance to it. That's what the verses mean. That's the sense of the verses. We're tied to it by what happened. We're tied to it by the timing. We're tied to it by the context. We're tied to it by what happened in Assyria. Was there a highway laid to Assyria and did the Red Sea and the Nile River ever disappear? And somebody will say, that's because, Pastor, you should be a futurist. It is yet to happen. There will be a highway built from Assyria, and the Red Sea and the Nile River will disappear. And if you were a futurist, you'd see it all clearly. Mr. Futurist, may I ask one question? Why did Paul say that it was fulfilled in his day? By taking verse 10 and preaching it to the Romans in Romans 15, 12. And why does the Bible say that the kingdom was pressed into way back then right. and it was a kingdom that they had received already and would never be shaken and never taken away? Mm -hmm. You're wrong, Mr. Futurist. One thought to end with. You say this just looks like a bunch of science fiction or just a novel. No, it's not a novel. The Lord laid a highway for me and the Lord took the Red Sea and the Nile River out of my way.
so that I could pass over so quickly. Do you know how Jewish I am? Just in financial matters, but... Do you know how Jewish I am? I'm not. How did I get to join a Jewish kingdom under a Jewish king? Were there any obstacles or hindrances taken out of the way? Were beautiful feet sent to me to show me the way? So that a highway was laid? So that I could drive wide open, pedal to the metal? Into the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Yes. I could go over dry shod. I didn't have to worry about renting a boat. I didn't have to worry about difficulties. Hearing the gospel, being converted by the gospel, being baptized, finding a church, being part of it. Every one of you that are saved know that there are things in your life. Listen, why did a closet Calvinist hand me four books when I was Johnny Motorcycle and I read them? Four great books. Why did that happen? Because a highway was laid for me. I wasn't in Assyria. I wasn't even in Egypt. But I needed a highway laid for me. Changed my life. I went over dry shod. No hindrances. And look what's happened. Look what's happened. Are there churches like ours in every nation? They're all Baptist churches all over the place. Exploded on the world. The Jews thought their case hopeless. Little pockets everywhere when they had once been a mighty nation gathered in one place with Mount Zion and Jerusalem right in the middle. So when they thought of a kingdom, they thought of Mount Zion and Jerusalem in the middle of a large, compacted nation. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is a large, compacted nation, kingdom, with Jerusalem and Mount Zion in the middle. It just is spiritual. It's the heavenly Jerusalem, not that earthly one. It's the heavenly Mount Zion. We have a website to build highways from Assyria. And we have a website to dry up the Red Sea and the Nile. You know, the great movement that is described here took place in the days of the apostles because the church of Jesus Christ exploded. Verse 10, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Every syllable is perfectly fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his kingdom, and the churches of Jesus Christ. Perfectly fulfilled. You wouldn't want a more perfect fulfillment. If you want to say that it's a future highway, then where are you right now? You must be outside the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We believe that Paul meant it when he wrote in Romans 15 that this was then for the New Testament era of Jesus and we're in the kingdom and the Lord has removed impediments to our conversion or you wouldn't be converted. He took so many things out of the way. When you look around this room and know about our family backgrounds, our religious backgrounds, our geographical locations, and for all of us to be here worshiping together as a body of the Lord Jesus Christ, there were a lot of hindrances removed, and there was a highway made to get us here. Yes. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.